Well, now this morning you can see that uh, we have prepared the uh, the emblems that we uh, use in the Lord's Supper at the communion table. It's a memorial meal. So if we, we have prepared the uh, grape juice and we have prepared the, uh, the unleavened bread. And this morning we want to read several passages of scripture dealing with the resurrection of Messiah, Jesus, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And I believe what we'll do this morning is we'll read these passages together and we'll think deeply about their meaning and we'll uh, just allow ourselves to bathe in the, in the reality of what this day represents to us. I think I should say a couple of things as we begin this morning in terms of, of our hope. If it were not for this day, what this day represents, the resurrection of Jesus. Just think about it. Just think about it with me. The resurrection of Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is God uh, and man. God uh, clothed in human form, in real human flesh and blood. And the resurrection of Messiah, and what that means to us in terms of our hope hope we have that we will meet our loved ones again. The hope that we have and the, and the faith that we have that our loved ones are with the Lord. If it were not for the resurrection of Jesus, then it wouldn't be possible for us to have this substantial uh, hope, in a sense, hope because we look forward to it. But it is a faith that is deeply established in our hearts. In, uh, before the resurrection, before the crucifixion of Jesus, he said several things recorded by John. One of the things he said by John was, he said, in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in the same way as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In the days of Israel of old, while they were in the wilderness, the people were bitten by poisonous serpents, and those who were bitten would die. Very venomous, very poisonous, and the people so bitten died. And so Moses was told by the Lord to uh, make a serpent, an image of a serpent in brass, and to raise it up, and all the people who would be bitten, looking on that serpent, brass serpent, raised up, uh, would live, would be healed. And so Jesus said in the same way, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in the same way, so the Son of Man, referring to himself, must be lifted up. And he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. So he is predicting, forecasting, speaking about his crucifixion soon coming. Matthew recorded Jesus as saying that as uh, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great sea monster, so the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, referring to his crucifixion, his death on the cross and his subsequent uh, journey, if you like, uh, to uh, Sheol, the place of the dead, from which he would rise. Psalm 22, of course, uh, Psalm 22 written by David is a great psalm that is messianic in the sense that it points to the Messiah. And it is... Uh, impossible to read that psalm without being moved deeply and profoundly. Written a thousand years before Jesus was born, this uh, great psalm was written at a time by David, king of Israel, at a time of great suffering, great personal anguish 
on the part of David. But as he is experiencing this tremendous depth of suffering and agony, that he is being betrayed by those who were closest to him, the spirit of prophecy comes upon him, and he is enabled to write words that will be fulfilled not only in, not in his life, but are fulfilled in the crucifixion of Messiah. Portion of Psalm 22, it's verse 19. He says these words. He says, "But thou, O Lord, be not far off; O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance." And Adam Clark, in his uh, brilliant commentary on this. Um, be not far from me. And he says, um, he said, all the expressions in this psalm that indicate any weakness as far as it relates to Christ, and indeed it relates principally to him, are to be understood of the human nature, for that in him God and man were united but not confounded. The whole New Testament to me bears evidence manhood being a perfect man, the Godhead dwelling bodily in that manhood. <coughs> Jesus as man was conceived, was born, he grew up, he increased in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man, hungered, he thirsted, he suffered and died as man. Jesus as God knew all things, was from the beginning with God, healed and the diseased and cleansed the lepers, raised the dead, calmed the raging of the sea, laid the tempest by a word. He quickened the human nature, raised it up from the dead, took it up into heaven where, as the Lamb newly slain, it ever appears in the presence of God for us. These are all scripture facts. The man Christ Jesus could not work those miracles. The God in that man could not have suffered those sufferings. Yet one person appears to do and suffer all here then is God manifested in the flesh. These are tremendous things. Tremendous thoughts. It says the divinity being the power by which the humanity was sustained in this dreadful moment. And little could David in writing the 22nd Psalm have really known the, uh, what he was actually writing. So be not discouraged when you're going through difficult times because the Spirit of God is able to work with you when you're going through very difficult times. And King David is a great example. There's so many passages. Isaiah chapter 53, I'll not read it today. It speaks about the Messiah, about his suffering. And all of these are included hundreds and some, in some cases a thousand and more years before Messiah was born. Now, I want to, um, in just a moment, I want to read in Luke chapter 24. But before I do that, I want to show you a couple of video clips uh, having to do with um, with the Shroud of Turin. I just want to show you a couple of little video clips having to do with this. The Shroud of Turin is a very interesting, uh, very interesting item, piece of cloth. On the uh, cloth, very faintly seen, is the figure of both front and back of a man. The markings on the cloth, cloth are very faint, but when a photograph is taken of them, they appear because uh, they appear much more distinct and clear than they do in just looking at the cloth. 
there was a program that was um, developed a few years ago, just maybe two years ago, by the History Channel. It was called The True Face of Jesus. And in this program, uh, with regard to the Shroud of Turin, it basically presented the case that this is a 3D image encoded on this cloth as a 3D image. Uh, it's very controversial in terms of the origin of it. They don't know exactly how it originated. They know it wasn't painted, but they don't know exactly how it was made. Are we saying it's the image of Messiah? We don't know. We're not saying it is the image of Messiah. We're saying it could be. We're saying that there's very strong, compelling, in some cases, evidence to suggest that it is. But we cannot say um, with absolute certainty that it is. But I want to uh, I want to show you. But one of the things that it brings out is the tremendous suffering in the crucifixion. Those who have studied this cloth in detail and determined the areas where blood and so on was on the body of the man in the shroud um, are just reduced to tears as they actually look at just the physical suffering that is involved here. And we know, we know that the suffering of Messiah Jesus was intense, intense suffering. All done for us. I want to show you just about three little video clips. Sherry will click on the first one and I'll show it to you. Now, just an introduction to it. It's a mystery that mankind has been trying to uncover for almost 2,000 years. The true face of Jesus Christ. There's a long tradition in Christian theology and Christian history of seeking the face of Christ of wanting to know what he was like as a man because the incarnation, God becoming man, is the great story of Christianity. We don't believe in an idea. We believe in a man. That man's face has been interpreted countless ways for hundreds and hundreds of years. But no one has accurately visualized the real Jesus Christ at least so far. Anywhere you go in the world, people recognize the face of Jesus. And the irony is, nobody actually knows what he looked like. Now, what they proceeded to do in this particular video was they uh, looked at it and analyzed and used computer technology to actually bring out the details they believed to be encoded in the cloth. And they, uh, they developed a 3D image of the face of the man in the shroud. Now, I'm not looking at that with you this morning. They did actually eventually came to an actual face. But um, there's uh, insufficient evidence for us to say that. I feel like once we get into that area, then we're walking on pretty thin ice. And uh, I don't feel comfortable in going quite that far with it. I am comfortable with looking at it up to a certain point, but not beyond that uh, point. And uh, so, but I do want to show you a couple more. This has to do with the very first time that a photograph was taken of the shroud. Let's look at this. Sipendu Pio was an amateur photographer who in uh, 1898 wanted to photograph the Shroud of Turin. 
he asked for permission of the Turin authorities if he could photograph the shroud. This would be the first time that the shroud was ever photographed. It was no simple undertaking that Secundo Pia had. Secundo had never seen the shroud because it was so rarely exhibited. Uh, the last time it had been exhibited, he'd been 10 years old. He had to deal with the varying voltages of the very new electric power in the Royal Palace, 1898. He put his piece of glass in that was coated with a photographic emulsion, took a picture, took it back to his darkroom, He has this negative plate submerged in the developer solution. And as he pulls the negative plate out of the developer solution, he sees for the first time an image that nobody else has ever seen. He was astounded. The story goes that he was so astounded he almost dropped the piece of glass. The image, for some reason, was so much more lifelike, so much more realistic, so much more clarity than what you see on the shroud itself. Being the religious man that he was, he said he was looking into the face of the Lord. So his image, his photo negative of the image, is what spread around the world and really uh, lit the fire of shroud uh, devotion. Imagine how uh, shocked, because when you look, look at really the photo uh, image compared to the real shroud image itself, it's just, it's just night and day. One is indistinct, the other is completely distinct. And that in itself is amazing. How, why would that be? The other thing I wanted to show you from this little video clip this morning is, um, has, has to do with the shroud and with a three-inch piece of material that is sewn to the side end to end. And the belief by those who studied it that this three inch piece was cut off the original shroud and used to wrap the shroud encased body. <coughs> then uh, when it was found in the empty tomb, the piece that was used to wrap around the shroud was then reattached or resewn to the side of the of the material. The reason why it would be shown that way and what it said to Peter and John, for example, who found it in the tomb, I thought this was rather interesting to look at. Let's watch this. But is this man the same one that was crucified in the year 33 AD? Could this cloth actually contain the final piece of evidence linking it to the burial of Jesus? A piece of evidence that may have been hiding in plain sight for centuries. Ray Downing's 3D imaging team is nearly finished creating their historical 3D model of the man in the Shroud of Turin. But did this mysterious cloth really wrap the crucified body of Jesus Christ? Dr. John Jackson believes that it did, and he believes that he may have found the hidden clue that proves it. We can see on the Shroud image that there's a disruption at the base of the chin that could be accounted for by something external to disrupt the image. 
That something may have been this mysterious three-inch-wide strip of cloth that runs the length of the shroud. There's been a lot of discussion, controversy about what this might be. But high-resolution backlit photographs of the cloth show that the complex weave of the strip is identical to that of the main cloth. The strip on the side was an integral part of the shroud at one time. Uh, it evidently was removed and then sewn back. Why would someone have removed a strip from the side of the shroud? Jackson believes that it was used to secure the body inside the shroud in accordance with Jewish burial customs. On the shroud, we have the legs. Looks like they're being held together. And likewise, the arms in a natural position would be off like this, but they're, but they're not. It's like the whole, like the arms are being held together directly. It's as if there's something on the outside of this cloth holding this shrouded package, if you will, together. I would submit that a candidate for this is the side strip that runs along the length of the shroud was cut off and then used in sort of a makeshift manner to hold the body together. Then it was later, for whatever reason, reattached back onto the shroud, so we have it today. That's a hypothesis that is, I think, consistent with what we know about the shroud. He also believes it helps to explain one of the most important passages in the New Testament. We know from the Gospels that Christ was crucified and died and then was taken off the cross. And according to the tradition of the Jews, his body would have been wrapped in linen and brought to a tomb. And according to the Gospels, it was the morning of the third day in which Jesus rose again. What happened in the tomb early Sunday morning? Mary goes to the tomb and sees that the stone has been rolled aside from the entrance. Sees that the body is gone. Runs to find Simon Peter and John. And she says to them, someone has taken the Lord's body and I don't know where they've put him not just stop right there. Mary's first impression is that someone stole the body. So John and Peter run to the tomb. And John arrives first. And as he's walking into that tomb, expecting to see the crucified Christ, his master, his teacher, he finds that there is a linen, a shroud. And John says, and I saw and believed that he had risen. So very interesting. Mary thinks the body's stolen. John and Peter go in and see the cloth lying there and believe that he had risen. So the question is, what did they see that Mary didn't see? And I believe that it has to do with the linen shroud. The shroud is the first piece of evidence that indicated that something extraordinary had happened here and certainly not that the body was stolen.
Now, if you saw the cloth wrapped up and balled up and thrown into a corner somewhere, well then, sure, okay, maybe the body was stolen. But the way that the shroud was laid out, flat on the stone sepulcher, just the same way that it was on Friday when Jesus was placed in it, strips of linen bound around the outside of the cloth, it was obvious that something extraordinary had happened here, something beyond human reason. That moment in which the tomb was seen empty for the first time could be described as evidence that Jesus truly was who he said he was. That's the belief that all of us Christians profess. It's the good news of the gospel. Transformed into light and gone. <clears throat> now these, these, um, this kind of information is interesting. This kind of information is not proof positive. Uh, our faith is not, does not rest on these kinds of information. Um, our faith rests on the written word, the scriptures, inspired by, by God. And uh, later on on that very same day, the day of the resurrection of Messiah, two men were walking to Emmaus, Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus, they didn't know who he was, and he began to walk with them and explained the scriptures to them as they were walking along the way. They said later that their heart was greatly moved within them as he opened up the Old Testament scriptures. What he was actually doing was uh, referring to the types and anti-types that we have been looking at the last couple of weeks ourselves. That all this was written about the Messiah. Their eyes were opened as he broke the bread, as he went in with them to have a meal. And their eyes were opened, they recognized him in the breaking of bread. They immediately went back to uh, Jerusalem where he appeared to them all in a room that was closed. The doors were closed. And I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read the first eight verses written by the Apostle Paul having to do with the evidences for the resurrection. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he was seen by Peter, and then by the Twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have already died. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, Paul himself, in writing this. There was no question that he had uh, he was personally, uh, personally viewed the risen Christ, that the Lord appeared to him. Also in Paul's writing this first letter to the church in Corinth, I want to go back to chapter 11 and I want to read this portion of scripture with you because the Lord appeared to Paul for a reason. He called him to be an apostle. He equipped him, prepared him. He appeared to him and he gave him specific information that he was to preach and teach. This is a portion and this relates to the memorial meal, the table of the Lord. 
that we want to uh, partake of this morning. In, this, uh, in these verses that I want to read to you now, I want to introduce you to the, to the emblems. This is unleavened bread. We've talked about this before. This bread has no yeast, uh, therefore it does not decay. And it is a type of the body of Messiah, that his body would not decay in the earth, that it would be raised, um, resurrected. This uh, bread is baked in a very unusual way. It is uh, baked in an oven on a grill, and it has uh, uh, stripes on it from the grill. It has no yeast in it, therefore there's nothing impure in it. So therefore it does not decay, because there's no impurity in it. It also is pierced, and you'll see little pierce marks in it, and it's pierced so that it will bake all the way through as it's baked in the oven. Therefore, it is pure, it is striped, and it is pierced. And at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread like this, and he uh, took it and broke it, unleavened bread at the Passover, and he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat this, represents my body. And in saying this to them, he said, this bread is a likeness of my body. He said that we should uh, eat the bread and drink the fruit of the grape, that we should do that in remembrance of him. And he gave instructions to the Apostle Paul in this regard. And I want to read those instructions, and then I'm going to ask Ruth if she'll come and play for us after we do. And then we'll come. This is an invitation. I'm going to read this slowly. Uh, this is not my invitation. This is an invitation from the Lord himself. This is the reason that uh, we have never taken the symbols, the bread and the grape juice around and served it to people here which is unusual perhaps. But we have not done that because we want to say that there is no intermediary between you and Christ. You come to him yourself. You receive from him personally. There is no one on the earth who can present Christ to you. We can talk about him and we can teach about him, but we can't actually minister him personally. He does that himself. So, and the other th idea that is contained in these words of invitation, it is an invitation, but it's a very serious invitation. And it's an invitation that says to examine that we should examine ourselves, make sure that our motives are right. That we're treating these uh, symbols or these emblems as holy, and uh, because of what they represent, not because of what they are, but because of what they represent. And that we should not ever do this lightly or as a matter of habit. Uh, we should do it very seriously, the fear of the Lord. Let me read the invitation. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. This is the kind of bread he took. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is or this represents my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. I want you to continue to do this, he said. And when you continue to do this, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember what this bread means. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Therefore, we have the grape juice. 
or the contents of the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. So we are to remember his death and we are to commemorate it by this memorial meal in the interval of time between his ascension and his second coming. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. It means it's guilty of profaning or approaching his body and his blood in a, with impure motives. But let a man examine himself. Let a person examine himself. And then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He's never said, don't come and take. He said, examine yourself before you come and then come. For, or because, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning or treating properly the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many have, uh, are, many have died. And he is saying, because they have approached the Lord's Supper in an unholy way, treating it um, <coughs> casually, that they actually were visited in their own lives with a judgment from the Lord. Some of them were sick as a result, and even some had died as a result. And he said, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And so what this means is that we're, we should judge ourselves before we come. And if we discern that there is something in our lives that is uh, not right before God, then we need to confess that, receive his forgiveness for that. Um, say to him that we will walk away from that. We will discontinue doing the thing that is wrong. And uh, make that solemn decision. Uh, receive his forgiveness freely offered by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. And then come. If we're unwilling to do that, we should not come. It's very simple, but it's very profound. But anyone standing in the place that I'm standing today has to take this very seriously and be sure that we communicate these words. Because if we do not, then we experience the judgment upon ourselves, you see. So we have to give the invitation, but we have to give it the way it has been given to us. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. May the Lord bless you as you ponder and weigh personally the invitation given by the Lord. Now I'm going to ask Ruth if she'll come in a moment. And uh, that she'll play. And we can just relax here for a moment, and then we will come. And the Lord bless you as you come. After having uh, considered it, 
And if you sense uh, something in your life that you need to confess to Him, then uh, do that. Do that. And ask His forgiveness for it. And He will surely give you His forgiveness. Does He want you to come? Yes. Does He want you to come casually? As if it's just something that we do? No. Does He want us all to examine our hearts before we come? Yes. Examine our hearts and then come. And then receive the bread. Break off a little piece and take it. When you consume the bread, you are saying, I'm consuming Christ. He is my life. He sustains me. This, these, well, it's not the physical bread, but it's what it represents. When you take the grape juice, you are saying, by his blood, I, my sins have been forgiven. I have been washed clean by, the sacrifice, by his sacrifice of his life. He shed his blood to make it possible for my sins to be forgiven including those ones that I confess right now while I wait and decide whether I will come or not. Lord bless you as you as you come, Ruth.